this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. This episode of Farm Tank is brought to you by AgSwag. AgSwag focuses on returning an ROI when it comes to corporate swag and client gifting to really take your business to the next level. AgSwag offers creative ways to build a winning culture in your business, smart strategies to lower customer acquisition costs, and a true vision to help your business improve customer retention rates. I've used AgSwag to help build the culture at Farm Tank, design logos, design t-shirts for special events, and really come up with a customer retention program to really start building brand ambassadors for my business. My theory is I can work with sweatshirts.com out of China that knows nothing about my business or agriculture itself, or I can use AgSwag, who are boots on the ground, submerged in agriculture every day, talking to farmers. I really use them as a sounding board when it comes to making decisions about corporate swag and client gifting. I know they're working with a lot of big companies such as CropRest Services at the moment, CGB, Lathrop and Gage, and they're even working with uh, the local farm to help them with employee retention and uh, customer retention problems when it comes to buying grain, renting ground. Uh, they're even expanded out into some construction businesses. I know they're working a lot with real estate companies they also have a CEO challenge out there right now as well. And you can contact me about that and I'd be happy to send it your way. But it's uh, seven secret questions to challenge every CEO. And I know they haven't got any CEOs to actually get all seven questions right. So it might be a good challenge just for you to try if you want to do AgSwag or not. Be sure to give AgSwag a call at 816-221-SWAG. They're always the go-to creative resource for swag and unique client gifting ideas. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with David Farley. David has worked in agriculture industry nearly his whole life. He started his career as a farm manager and worked his way up to the managing director and CEO at Collie Cotton, then joined Calcott in 2002 as the president, soon moving on to the CEO at Australian Agricultural Company in 2009. Now David is currently the Executive Chairman at Matrix Commodities, and with that, I'd like to welcome David to the show. Thanks very much, Jordan. Thank you. Yep, I appreciate you uh, doing this with me today and uh, grateful for it. But uh, let's start this podcast off by you telling us a little bit about Australia and your background. Um, I think you're the first guest I've had on the show from Australia. Well, thank you, yeah. Well, Australia, as um, most Americans would know, we're commonly referred to from your focus down under, you know, you've got to look across across the equator, and, and uh, there we are down there in the in the southern hemisphere. You know, we sit there with a land mass equal to equal to size equal to approximate size of continental USA, and we're we're populated with about uh, 24, just approaching 25 million people. Um, we're a little bit different to America. That um, we started out as a penal colony, where you guys started out as uh, free settlers, and um, from there, you know, we've gone about building our nation, and um, we've uh, we like America have been pretty open, and we've welcomed 
all people from all around the world, all nationalities, all creeds, all different religions, and had success of building a, a multicultural society. We're a responsible country, you know, we're, we're actually second to the United States with our commitment to the, the conflicts in the Middle East, and we've stood shoulder to shoulder with Americans now for uh, well over a century in, um, in supporting you know, freedom and democracy around the world through all the different world wars. Um, so that's, that's Australia. We're counter-seasonal. You know, when you guys have got your winters, we've got our summers. We're, we're complementary to agricultural production in a host of areas. We can fill in the counter-seasonal uh, positions. Even though we don't grow as much produce as America, uh, but we grow surplus to what we need. We roughly in all commodities, we consume between between uh, 20 and 30 percent, and the rest of it finds its way to the international markets. We price everything in U.S. dollars, uh, and we have an exchange rate as it moves around from being above par or below par, which is virtually our only form of subsidy that we have because we don't we don't subsidise anything um, in Australia from an agricultural perspective. So. That's Australia, and um, my career, I suppose, to give you a bit of a background on me, is that I come from an agricultural service family. My father had a, uh, a great business with a, quite a number of employees, but always had a great rapport with his uh, farmer customers. He was a financier to crops. He was a marketer of crops. He'd take principal positions, and he would service them with chemicals, fertilizers, farm equipment, uh, etc. Um, and... Uh, I looked at the opportunity of following on in those footsteps, but uh, I went a different way. I, I started out my career as a jackaroo, which is a kind of an apprentice ranch hand uh, in Australia, and then made my way up through uh, the system from being the, the jackaroo or the ranch hand to the overseer, and then ultimately into roles of management. I was very fortunate the company I was working with was owned by Rupert Murdoch, the newspaper magnate, and he had good management that were good mentors to me and he also gave me the opportunity to travel internationally and see what was happening specifically in America that uh, I could apply to um, his uh, 320,000 acre holding back in Australia. So from there, you know, agriculture has been my life and um, you've, you've summed it up to date from um, Collie Cotton through to Calcot through to the Australian Agricultural Company. All of them have been big enterprises and they've been held and run in different structures, you know, Collie Cotton, I ran it from a private company into an into a ASX-listed, Australian Stock Exchange-listed company. We did a buyout. We introduced uh, uh, long-term private equity to it. Then we listed it again and ultimately sold it out through a takeover to a German family. And Calcott, as many would know, is an extremely large farmers co-op on the West Coast. Um, I believe I was successful there in... Um, getting returns to farmers, uh, changing the culture of Calcott was more challenging. And then over to the Australian Agricultural Company, um, it's Australia's second oldest company. 1824 it was founded from a, a grant from one of the kings of England. And um, when I uh, was running it, we had uh, something like 29 million acres under our command. And when I finished there, we had a herd approaching 600,000 head of cattle with uh, live exports They've been in excess of 100,000 head a year into the Southeast Asian markets of Indonesia, Malaysia, and uh, uh, Vietnam. We had an excellent Wagyu model of about 64,000 carcasses a year into one client in South Korea. And uh, then we also had a 100-day Fed program going. 
So it, it was an interesting business, considering that compared to cotton, it's not fungible. It's a, a very liquid-traded business, um, and it has to sit there at the whims of Mother Nature with droughts, rains, etc. Yet challenging enough in Australia that um, uh, we were transitioning out of um, uh, pastoral leases and negotiating our way through Indigenous ownership um, and uh, improving the carrying capacity. So you're, uh, every morning you had a host of subjects to manage um, across a pretty big canvas. So that's kind of me, Jordan, if you like, of um, my background and where I am today. Um, I can yeah, share with you a little sure. more on Matrix Commodities, but um, I might put a full stop to it there and back to you. Let's go back to the Jackaroo comment you had. That was your first real job as a rancher. Was that working with cattle? or? No, that was actually... Um, uh, Rupert Murdoch bought out a, a big company called FS Faulkner and & Sons, and it, even though it had a, about a 4,000-head uh, cattle herd on it, its principal role was um, stud merino sheep breeding, and it had oh, about okay. 180,000 merino sheep that really supplied the genetics to the Australian herd and then some of the genetics to the, herds, uh, to the flocks in uh, Paraguay and uh, other parts of the world. Um, and my role there was so I started in the pastoral side, but ultimately I finished up in the farming side doing their uh, irrigation development, growing their rice crops, growing their wheat crops, growing their pasture crops, uh, etc., uh, which I really enjoyed. But it kind of opened a new world to me. And um, as a young man, I got approached to um, go and run a company called Collie Cotton. And it was based on a large ranch or station, as we call them, called Collie Mungle Station, that sat at the confluence of two big river systems coming out of northern New South Wales. And I went there, and we had a crop of 400 acres of cotton in our first year. And 19 years later, when I left there, um, we farmed on freehold and sharehold share farming something like 64,800 acres of cotton. And we had two big high-production cotton gins. We developed a marketing um, a company that not only marketed our cotton, but we marketed another 600,000 bales on behalf of other farmers in Australia. We had a very good supply chain to market with warehouses based in Brisbane. And then complementary to that, to offset seasonal risk and price risk, we went into a marketing partnership, in a joint venture partnership with the Houchin family in California, handling another two to 300,000 bales a year there um, principally as a supply and weather hedge risk, but it also allowed us to develop intimate knowledge of the U.S. farm programs and become better marketers for it. So it was it was uh, quite an eminent company in its own right. It's been broken up yeah. and liquidated out now. Um, but um, that was 19 years of um, uh, prosperity and fun. Yeah, speaking of Collie Cotton, since we're uh, talking about it a little bit, I really wanted to pick your brain on uh, kind of your transition throughout that company. As I said, you started as the farm manager. After seven years working there, you were already the CEO, leading strategic growth at that company. I was just wanting to know what that transition was like in that short period of time and what advice you would give me being a young CEO at AgSwag and Farm Tank currently. Well, I think that the most important thing in life is that you need to know where you're going. You don't want to arrive at someone else's future. So you've actually got to create 
what I call your own panorama. You know, you need to be able to look to your left and to your right. You need to respect where you come from and know what you've learned so you can take those learnings and put them into your future. But you need, in your own right, to be able to understand what your future is, where is your horizon, and what is it going to take you to get there. And in my case, you know, I could always see the opportunity of creating a cotton, a vertically integrated cotton producer, cotton ginner, cotton market as the international marketplace. And I knew that I had to reach critical mass along the way. And critical mass was um, getting to a point where I could afford the, econ or the economics of work to build my first cotton ginnery. And that was like a $15 million exercise. And not only did I have to build it, I had to make sure I could work it properly and run it properly. So I, I reached that, and then I still had a powerful resource base of greenfield acres and water allocation under me to go further. And uh, quickly realised that if I did that, I'd be needing a second cotton ginnery. And as I went along, I needed to be able to maximise the value of the product by taking it to market. So not only did we have to educate people in the art of classing cotton and uh, running HVI machines and things like that, but we also had to make sure that we could manage our own risk. And therefore, we had to manage international market risk. So we needed people who had, we needed to be able to educate people on the, the skills of pricing cotton properly, uh, understanding how the markets work themselves, being the New York cotton market, the number two contract understanding how to price options properly, um, and then understanding seasonality risk and seasonality opportunity, how to seize it, harness it, and profit from it. We quickly realised that uh, we couldn't live and survive on being a single origin growth. We needed to be multi-origin to be able to uh, offer product and assurity of product to uh, the international marketplace. So that took us into California because we were growing similar grades of cotton. And once we got to that point, uh, we were able to comfortably get premiums above what the co-ops were achieving and other marketers were achieving. Uh, and ultimately, that helped us build our marketing pool to get to what I call critical mass, where certain spinners and yarn makers were relying on big, long, continuous runs of cotton for high-grade comb 40-count yarn better and the model I was developing was going right into that sweet spot of the market. So, you know, your advice, the advice I can give is make sure you understand where you're going. Uh, create your own future. Don't arrive at someone else's future. But the panorama of the vision, you need to be able to articulate it to a, a broad sheet of people. You'll be bringing young men and women alongside you to develop your operation. So you need to be able to articulate what you want them to do, where they're playing, and where their career opportunities are. In my case, I was using both debt and equity to raise the, grow the company. So my relationships with my banking syndicates were important, that I had to be able to explain not only where I was, but where am I going, and what type of capital I needed to get there. And I had <clears throat> different forms of short, medium, and long-term debt to achieve it because I was developing short-term trading horizons, mid-term cropping cycles, and long-term infrastructure development. And I had to be able to learn the art and skill of balancing working capital 
oft against development capital and um, bring in uh, uh, investors in alongside it through the ASX listings. And being able to articulate my uh, story of where I was going was so important to develop for third parties to develop confidence in in the vision and in the panorama are there that, that, that I was proposing. So my advice is make sure you know where you're going, make sure you know how to articulate it, and when you're articulating it to people, uh, some need the same story but crafted in a different manner. The employees needed mm -hmm. to be able to see success and career horizon. Bankers needed to be able to see they could get their money back, and long-term investors were looking for capital growth and dividend. And um, crafting the story on your panorama is very important. Yeah, you talked a lot about um, articulating what you say different to your employees, and you grew Collie Cotton to over 600 people. What's your hiring? What was your hiring process like there? I'm uh, starting to hire new people every day, and you got one problem I'm running into is you got to be able to trust people when you do tell them to do something that they do it and do it right. And that's just one problem I'm running into. So what what was that like at Collie Cotton for you? How did was there a certain hiring process you went through that you knew these people could do it, or do you just that's just how it works? I'm just that's just one thing. Wrap, yeah. I'm wrapping well, my head a, around it. My current yeah. moment. That's a that's a it's a it's a great question, but more importantly, it's a real question. I'll, I'll start with the other end of it. Every time I had to dismiss one of my reports who reported to me. And I didn't have to dismiss any. I had to be very, very honest with myself that the mistake was mine, that I'd actually employed the wrong person because um, it was my decision to um, craft the position. Then um, it was also my decision how we presented it and then ultimately going through the candidates, it would come down to me to my decision who I employed. And I employed my direct reports which in the case of Collie Cotton were only six executives, both male and female. And I was confident under them that if I could articulate our vision and our future properly and the skills base were required, I would leave it up to them to go out and employ below themselves, their reports. Even though I would get involved in it, the ultimate decision was theirs and I would at times have to step in and challenge their decision uh, I would never dismiss their decision and I would also mentor them on making the decision that they got the right person in there. But the bottom line is you yourself have to be a man of values and, and a man of integrity and, and morality and um, you've got to be able to um, demonstrate that to get trust and I had to trust my employees and my direct reports and they had to trust me because I was taking big risks that um, could affect them as well. So I think the ultimate goal is there is be able to articulate your uh, suite of value products that you're a person, one, of integrity. In other words, you're going to be fair, honest, and uh, have some humility. Two, you, you need to be able to be a person of the future. You need to be able to articulate it. Uh, you need to be of strong moral character. Uh, because you're, you're asking those people below you to bring on the same values and then ultimately trust them but make sure you're communicating all the way along and when it yeah. does come time and it's not working you've got to be able to sit down and have what I call 
a true adult conversation with them. Not an emotional conversation because you know we're about running an enterprise that's using other people's capital and we're about reaching specific goals. But you need to be able to sit down and explain what's not going, why isn't it working, and um, you need to do. You only need to do that once, and you don't need to do it twice because you have to do it twice. You need to be having a second conversation, which is how you're terminating the partnership or the relationship you've got. So. <laughs> I think it all comes down to your, um, your your value base first, and your employees must share the same values that you can demonstrate to them. Yeah, that's some. Uh, that's definitely some good advice for me moving forward. On the value part, you just spoke about though. I know you mentioned a little bit about changing the company culture at Collie Cotton when you were there, and at Axwag, we focus a lot on company culture and the values of company culture. We're working with some startups now currently on their company culture, scaling that to a new level. I was just wanting to pick your brain a little bit. I didn't know we were going to get into this, but I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on what you wanted to change in the company culture at Collie Cotton and why you feel company culture is so important. Well, at Collie Cotton, we ended up um, building an internationally recognized brand in the high end of yarn spinning in the um, comb forward accounts and better. So we were principally in the apparel markets, not in the industrial markets of denim and um, uh, denim and uh, drill. So as you're building a brand, you need to have every employee being a brand representative. And we wanted to portray ourselves of all the values I said earlier on of, of trust, integrity and morality. And that needed to go right through to the delivery of our product. So most of our clients who had good brands, you know, the, the brands of um, Benetton, Nike, Adidas, etc., Brooks Brothers, um, they wanted to know that they were sourcing their cotton from a, a sustainable and ethical source of production. So to be sustainable and ethical is that you must have principles and a culture that is not only for the present but is there for the long term and the future. Uh, it needs to be equitable to all employees and all other stakeholders that um, uh, we conducted commerce with. So the cultural change was to take us from being a small startup farming organisation that grew into a big one, but a farming operation that was building a brand that from the marketers in the international marketplace to the guys who were trading it on the desk, right down to the agronomist and the entomologist and field labour, is they needed to be part of that brand. And the trick there was making sure that you demonstrated those values from the top and they filtered down through the system. You don't want to push them down, they've got to filter down. People need to own them, they don't need to be obligated to them. And uh, more importantly, we, you know, we were building a brand and um, that, that brand had to be built on values of both, uh, both uh, sustainability in the field and equity across um, people and how we, uh, how we conducted ourselves not only with our employee base but with all the other stakeholders, service suppliers, etc. and more importantly how we're going to uh, conduct ourselves in the transaction itself. So um, cultural change came about with the Collie Cotton model was we were growing from a small into a large farming base with the ambitions of having a brand which we ended up with Therefore, 
we needed to make sure we could demonstrate we had the right culture across a host, host of management units and styles that um, the culture needed to be reflected in the brand. And we were able to achieve that. Yeah, I think that's some good advice for my company itself as it's starting to scale to the next level and definitely some of the startups I'm working with um, transitioning a little bit later in your career. Tell me a little bit about your role at uh, Australian Agricultural Company and what you did with them and took and how you took them to the next level. Yeah, well, the AAK Company came with big provenance, big deep provenance. It was a company founded in 1824. And um, when I came into the management of it, uh, it was Australia's largest landowner. It had 1.1% of Australia's land mass. It was Australia's largest capital, uh, cattle operations. Um, even at the start of it, we had 380,000 head and uh, soon worked our way with breeding programs and, and buying cattle in uh, north of uh, 600,000 head of cattle. Uh, we were an operation that had uh, literally three income streams to it. It had its live cattle exports to the Southeast Asian markets. It had its high-quality Wagyu brand, principally then focused on the South Korean markets with one major customer. Uh, a little bit of Wagyu into America and then into Australia. And then we had our 100-day uh, fed program and surplus cattle program that principally went into the domestic retail and some, some export. It was... A goal of mine was to transform and improve profitability across a number of areas. We had um, relatively, um, compared to the industry, we were good in our branding numbers and carving numbers, but when you looked at the, uh, the value of a cow and the value of a cow unit, we could get a better return on capital if we could optimise it. So we looked at the northern herds being the, the, the cross between the Charolais and the Brahmins and the Centipoles, uh, was how we could maximise cattle from Central Australia into the red wheat market. And uh, one of the opportunities we saw was to develop, integrate the company and build a, an abattoir, which the company did. Um, so we designed, got approved, funded, and started building an abattoir. Unfortunately, I didn't stay with the company. I, I left the company halfway through the um, building stage and went on to other things. But again, what we were trying to do there was not only take long-term people who had built a career in pastoral, we're trying to get them to, from a management team's perspective, get them to become pastoral asset managers. And they were incredibly skilled in animal husbandry and grass management, but we were able to take them through exercises of teaching them now of assets under, under management. We had long-term assets being the big ranches themselves, and then we had working capital assets being the herds and the plant and equipment. And we were able to educate managers there that uh, what were we were looking for from a return on equity, internal rate of return, uh, identified clearly with them where their role as on-farm managers or on-ranch managers, what were the key buttons to push to make sure that they got return that we could consolidate back through to shareholders. So culturally, what we were doing were transforming pastoralists, taking their skills and keeping them alive, but trying to turn them into asset managers and advance their careers and improve the performance of our assets. And we're also looking at maximising the opportunity of um, getting our product into retail, into a retail presence by owning and operating the abattoir and then having strategic relationships with other abattoirs. And 
I believe the company are on the pathway to success with that. They've had some changes post me and I'm not intimate enough with them to speak with authority on them, so I won't. But the whole objective there was to create a large vertically integrated uh, three retail approach to market being live, Wagyu and 100 day fed cattle. Uh, and ultimately, instead of being price takers, turning the business into being price makers for um, mm-hmm. uh, the product. Yeah, that's good. And definitely a great explanation of what you did there. I mean, you explained so much to me more the more I'm talking to you. All the moving parts of a company and when you scale to that level, how many things can go wrong and how many things are going in so many different directions. I mean, I'm it's just me and two other guys right now and I think things get a little crazy and when I scale to 100 people, it's a whole different gig and you're dealing with five, 600 people. So, well, not only good, uh, dealing with five, 600 people, but I was also dealing with a publicly listed company which had governance controls around it with ASX listing issues. But in my four-year tenure there, I had three chairmen. So I had three chairman board changes. I had two major shareholder changes where I went from um, one shareholder out, one shareholder in, uh, which creates a lot of um, cultural change in the boardroom to manage. And in the middle of all that, the Australian government through Prime Minister Julia Gillard put a ban on the live cattle exports into the Southeast Asian markets. So you've got literally uh, 100,000 head lined up for export over a year that you've got to go and uh, re-divert and create new markets for them. Um, Building you know, the operating side was um, nice and challenging itself, but the corporate governance of that company with ownership change, three chairmen in four years, and then government intervention over one of our major revenue streams was, uh, again, beyond challenging at times, but we got through it all. What about the uh, difference? What, what's the difference between managing a private and publicly held company? as a CEO standpoint, because we're working with people all the time and we work with businesses with my dad and myself and they're like, we want to go public, we want to go public, but I think they fail to understand what comes along with going public. Well, the first thing that comes along with going public is it's going to cost you more to run the business. It definitely increases your fixed cost of overheads with the compliance issues that comes with it. And the other thing is that you go from uh, being viewed at via binoculars to being viewed at under a microscope and you've got uh, small mum and pop investors who are taking a um, uh, an investment bet on you that you're going to perform and work their capital in this industry better than anyone else and you're also working with fund managers both short and long term um, in a business that's got in a business when I took it over had uh, seasonality to it I was trying to transform it, take that seasonality out of it and turn it into a, uh, a red meat supply chain. So you've got, uh, you're under the microscope a lot more. You can end up in the media for all the good things you can do. So you're yep. actually managing a, a bigger public and personal profile that comes with a higher degree of risk about it than what it does being in a private company. Let's uh, Let's move aside from your career a little bit now and just tell me from a personal perspective what makes David tick. Uh, from what you told me, family is your greatest joy, and you told me you live within reach of four generations of your family, all the way from 92-year-old 
grandmother all the way to the three-year-old grandchild. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your family and why they're so important to you? Well, yeah, it's pretty simple. What The greatest asset uh, a man can have and the greatest man can give to his community and his society is his family. Very fortunate my mother is still with us. My dad passed a number of years ago, but I look back at mum who's 92 years old and a sprightly 92 and what she gave me from her life and now what I can actually return to her from my life. I look at not only and appreciate my enjoyment of having grandkids, but I love the warm big smile my grandmother gets, my mother gets in having great grandchildren. So, and then I'm also mildly proud that my children are now contributors to society. They are raising their families uh, in um, their way, but in a way that I admire for uh, a different generation raising children in a different environment to how I was raised. But I firmly believe that they're going to gift society with people, children and a generation that will have the values that make society work. And some of those those values is the uh, uh, ability to demonstrate humility to all those around you, to be a great contributor, to be interested in in life and to be interesting to life. Um, And it's something that can't be taken away. You know, uh, life unfortunately comes to an end so we'll all expire at some point in time Um, but uh, if life is uh, maintained well and it's healthy and focused it's exciting it can be a great contributor to society and uh, I'm just mighty proud that I've got uh, three daughters with three great husbands who've gifted me with seven children and to my to my mother uh, seven grandchildren that uh, how to say they put smiles on my face and warmth in my heart that uh, I look at the future and think, wow, we're going in the right direction here. Yep, for sure. And that's, uh, I don't know if my parents quite got that, but um, I think they're trying to start that in our family and I'm uh, definitely going to try to carry it on. But um, what about uh, travel? From what I heard, you've been to some awesome places and did quite a bit of traveling. What's, what are some of the coolest places you've been to travel-wise that you love? Well, there's, there's one thing about Australia, uh, we we travel. We've got big distances in the country to travel from place to place and um, uh, when you've got operations from the centre of Australia to the north of Australia and you've got headquarters on the east coast, you're travelling all the time and um, uh, across the AAK, well, I've used a Pilatus PC-12 as my vehicle to get around there, uh, which is a great aeroplane. So in Australia... You, you travel to great areas, you come across, you know, the culture in northern Australia is different to the culture in southern Australia, as opposed to the east and west coast, they're culturally different people as well, but they're still all Australians. And then to the world, you know, not many people live in the southern hemisphere, the majority of the people live in the northern hemisphere, and to go and explore new markets, develop new markets, to find out where new technology is, to be educated, uh, you're always in and out of the Northern Hemisphere, and uh, I've had the fortune to be some to some really interesting places. I've um, I've always found America to be generous to me. They uh, have been generous to me to that I've been able to learn a lot in trade from America. I've been able to educate myself in the skills through some of the business colleges in America, uh, and 
I've got some fantastic friends and associates in America that have always been uh, warmly opened their arms and their houses to me to come and uh, enjoy their culture. And uh, at times I get the chance to reciprocate back in Australia. And then I've been to some interesting places around the world. You know, I found the breakdown of the former Soviet Union when uh, the stands, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Georgia, all etc., came out of the Soviet Union. We did a lot of trade uh, in there. And I found um, Turkmenistan and Almaty and all those cities really interesting to travel to and, tra- and trade. Um, Australia has a, a great relationship with Southeast Asia, so we're very familiar with Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, and do a lot of work through there. Uh, my travels have taken me uh, onto the West Coast, West African coast countries to uh, trade and barter trade cotton out of there and uh, into transforming countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe to uh, work there. Uh, yeah, I've been fortunate. I've been to interesting places and met interesting people. I've had great experiences and, uh, and I've had some experiences I wish I'd never had. <laughs> Definitely on both of those. But uh, yeah, what about art? You told me you're a big art fan too. What's uh, travel around a bunch? Yeah. What's some of your favorite art, and why do you like it so much? Yeah, well, art's art's really interesting. Um, I started collecting art because I was seeing art and being in places that uh, I enjoyed the art, and I would buy a piece of art so I could relate that art to where I've been and what my career was. <clears throat> a lot of my art was focused on, on around agriculture. And over years, all of a sudden, I realized, wow, i got a collection of art, big art. And um, so I've been able to put it on show and into a gallery and share it with my, the small community I live in and, and people who travel back and forth. Let's talk about where you're at now with Matrix Commodities. You just tell us a little more about the company and exactly what you guys do. Okay. Well, Metrics Commodities has been a, a company of mine that I've had for a number of years, and when I take on an executive role, it kind of gets shuttered down. But what Metrics Commodities is, it's got three platforms of operation. Um, it's got a, a property arm that we focus on uh, opportunities in peri-urban agriculture. We like buying land on the outskirts of towns and uh, small cities that we know ultimately will go from agriculture into industrial land or into residential land. And across those three uh, platforms that we run, of course, it has a host of three different skills. Um, one is, you know, uh, the one is understanding the property cycle. The middle one, of course, is understanding global trade and what influences. And that's where the name Matrix Commodities came from, is we're looking at all the different matrices that makes price, everything from from the seasonality to the to the market itself, the basis, the premiums, the discounts, the logistic handling, government policies, you've got to look at a matrix of interest to determine where price is, price is properly priced or uh, it uh, gives you an opportunity to make profit from. And then the high-level consulting, that keeps us in the field. It keeps us with a hand on production and keeps us with a hand on where capital flow is going and it keeps us with an international presence. I know you talked a little bit about commodities and you guys do some stuff on the commodity market. We, uh, as, as you know, we have a lot of farmers who listen to the podcast and my dad works with a lot of farmers. Um, I was just wanting to pick your brain a little bit on where you thought the markets were going in the next three to six months on uh, mainly probably corn, beans, and wheat. 
Yeah, well, uh, again, we're we're in those markets watching them every day, but we're not in them every day. And at the moment, we're starting to develop positions, and we generally start developing our positions through the options market. And then once we've got conviction that we are, we've got our entry points right, then we'll start moving into the pure futures themselves or taking physical positions. So I'll go across the three as I see them at the moment. I Okay. Are you, are you longer-term bullish? or? Yeah. You think yeah, we're in a good spot? Corn, if I go to the corn markets first, and then, you know, coming from an agricultural perspective, it's very difficult to make day degrees, and it's very difficult to make just days in agriculture. And the start of the Northern Hemisphere, especially the U.S. corn crop, wasn't perfect. It was far from perfect. The growing seasons weren't bad, but they, they weren't superior to any other season. And the closing down of the crop now, again, isn't closing down in optimum period, in, in under optimum circumstances. I am not confident that we will hold trend yield. I am not confident that the USDA yields will eventuate. But I do know that the USDA forecast and uh, USDA estimates is what the market trades and we might have to wait outside of this crop season to get that actually showing up in the supply and demand balance sheets. So yeah. on corn, generally, I'm, I'm friendly to the market and prepared to get bullish quickly as I need to be. In the wheat markets, um, if you look at the balance sheet, the world has got enough wheat, but it's got it in the wrong spots. And now in particular, even though we're small producers compared to the rest of the world, we're big exporters compared to most people in the world. I do think Australia is going to have a big impact on supply and demand coming into it. So we're beginning to position ourselves in the dated months to take advantage of uh, what we believe will be uh, tightening supplies in wheat coming into the market. Soybeans is all about China. Uh, it's all about China. It's all about hog production in China. And uh, like the corn crop, the bean crop didn't get off to an optimal start. It hasn't been able to make up days, and I think we'll, that will show up in yield eventually. Uh, but what's driving beans at the moment is more China. I understand what uh, the U.S. strategy by Trump is that he wants to achieve in China, and uh, I'm supportive of it. Uh, but I do think there will be a huge opportunity in beans when they come. And they're going to be, I think in beans in particular, it'll be a, a lightning-fast response to the right data when it's uh, available to the market. Mm -hmm. I think we're definitely on the same page on uh, all three of those crops. Um, um, I think that's it for our Farm Tank session today. We're uh, hopefully going to see you at FarmCon this year. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast with me and let me or my dad know, both of us, if you ever need anything, and we'll be happy to help you out. Great. Now, I respect the relationship I've got with yourself and your dad. Awesome. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks a lot, Jordan. All the best. Yep. See ya.